So we strongly believe that uh, young people should be part of, of these decision-making processes, for example, and the government should take this emphasis in young voices at not only COPs, at not only big events, or not only ticking the box, but they should be part of the established process, for example, that countries should adopt. Cast your mind back to when you were younger. How did you want to change the world? What skills and opportunities do you wish you had to succeed? And now, fast forward to today. Do you believe young people have these skills and opportunities? In Youth We Trust sits down with successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, educators and others from around the world. We spotlight how individuals and organisations are shaping a better world, directly or indirectly, for the coming generations through their focus on sustainability, equity, education and more to empower young people to create the future they deserve. And now, in Youth We Trust. Today, I sit down with Anna Romero, an ultra runner and former advisor to the Mexican government on climate action. She's now dedicated to driving actionable change and to promoting an intergenerational dialogue on climate change by working with young people as an educator focused on sustainability. Anna is authentic and passionate, someone I immensely enjoyed spending time with, and I hope you do too. Good morning, Anna, and welcome to the podcast In Youth We Trust. Hello, good morning. Thank you for inviting me today. Thank you. I'm really pleased to have someone like you. Well, you've just come back from COP28. You work with one of the leading educational institutions in the UK, Wellington College, and you come from Mexico. Welcome again. And I'd like to take you straight into um, the deep end, and if that's okay. Yes, that's fantastic. It sounds great. <laughs> so uh, you know that Lumi is all about uh, empowering young people through our online quests where they get to solve global issues and uh, and come up with tangible innovations. So let me take you back to your younger self. Was there a problem or a quest, therefore, that you wanted to be on? Yes, absolutely. Coming from a family that was formed by doctors, I had the massive opportunity that my parents were taking me into their research fields. And usually it was in very deprived areas that I have been working with my parents and they were putting me in charge of small activities. But that was uh, opening my eyes to the difference in between the opportunities I was having and the opportunities of other children. So that helped me to understand that I was part of a system, that it was not something isolated from one to another, that the uh, well-being of children was linked to their environments to how they were really relating themselves to nature, how I was related to nature when I was having the opportunity to be uh, spending weekends in the ranch of my grandfather, for example, and how I was looking into the well-being of animals, for example, as well, how I was interrelating myself to the trees that were giving us fruits, to the forest that was nearby, to the rivers, to the ocean, spending all time. So then I realized that I was part of a system. I decided to join the eco-society of my school. And when I joined, I was hands-on planting trees, getting blisters because I didn't know how to handle tools, getting those blisters, looking after that uh, uh, forest, mini forest that we were building. Sadly, one year, that 
forest was gone because of a fire and a fire that was caused by someone that had interest in building some housing there. And then there was a shock of another reality that there was the economic interest of some people above nature. Uh, so my, my journey started when I was really very young in, in high school, being very active always for the rights of animals, thinking that it was not fair to have elephants in circus, for example, or it was not fair for other children to not have access to education. So the main, so the main e- issue I wanted to solve it was injustice, basically. There were injustice. Fighting. Wow. So your quest was to address injustice. So to solve injustice, you did a lot by uh, being a part of the eco-society and doing various things in high school. What skill were you really bringing to the table to solve that problem? Yes, well, I think it was always communication, always uh, building empathy and understanding others' perspectives. And, and it was really sitting and understanding the perspective of others and really collaborating with others. So I remember very well, for example, when we started working with a disaster in a disaster area, uh, there was floodings and then we organized help together with the Red Cross locally. And then uh, I, I could hear children talking that this is not taking away my dreams and my hopes, but thank you for helping us. And that was like, oh, that child lost everything. And they were really willing to share their experience and, and getting to know that they were not going to lose their dreams was an eye-opening for me as well. So um, I, I believe that that really motivated me when I started and selected international relations as my main topic of studying university, my, my bachelor's degree, because I wanted to look to this whole world perspective uh, and really potentialize those skills and competencies and understand how I could contribute in the global perspective, but also acting local. What were you missing in terms of skills that your your present self could lend its uh, it you know them to your younger self uh, well i first of all i always studied in a, in the public system i was always i never went in a private school never and the first time i put my feet in an airplane was when i was 15 years old uh so thanks to books thanks to the radio i was always imagining that world but probably I was missing really the touch of understanding that experience of visiting the other place and looking to those communities, which I, I always loved. So what I was missing really was the understanding of how others live in other places. And okay. as part of my skills was that public speaking, I would say, that is really important because I was quite introverted till uh, I was in university, so public speaking was probably one of the most important skills I was missing. And you were missing, yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, it was a very rich childhood, I must say, Anna, uh, in many ways, and a very sensitive one as well. No wonder you are so active on the sustainability front today. Uh, so let's actually talk about the today. So how are you now directly and indirectly impacting the lives of the next generation um, and contributing to the causes that you care about, whether it is the planet or it's injustice? 
Yes, well, um, when I started my my journey as educator in Wellington College, I knew I was going to be working quite closely with young people. Mm. And it was a great interest of mine to really interact with them because I strongly believe in this intergenerational equity that is precisely one of the principles of Action for Climate Empowerment internationally that I have been working for many years as as, as a senior advisor and negotiator. Um, and then I thought this was a great opportunity to hear uh, by first hand what young people wanted to learn about and for me to become that facilitator. I strongly believe on education for sustainable development as a driver for change and for that behavioral transformation that we need in society. So thanks to that, I uh, collaborated with different organizations in creating different alternatives as a part of the co-curriculum. So we created the sustainability program and uh, with that sustainability program that was part of a trial for an organization called Sustainability and Environmental Education, SEED, we created this uh, sustainability program as part of the compulsory curricular activities we offer. We educate them in the way that they are really part of, of that system, that they see themselves of that system in the educational grounds, I want to say, in the educational grounds that is the school. Uh, and they use Wellington College as their own laboratory where they get to understand, oh, what's my play getting to understand the states operations, what is my take in the catering team, what is this part that is behind the scenes that is not really in the classroom. Uh, and the impact has been as much as they wanted, really. There wow. are students that they have created designs for science and technology. There is other students that they have created like massive statements and impact now, for example, in COP28 through a student declaration. Uh, there are others that they were part of COP26 and they had a massive impact in, in local schools. And there is others that they have decided to take it, for example, really much in Wellington and say, we will er eradicate plastics from, from our schools. Just for the benefit of the audience, uh, Wellington College is one of the most well-known boarding schools in the UK. It's also a very privileged institution. So... I want to go back to equity and, and privilege and injustice. How are you making this uh, awareness, and, awareness and, and contribution to making the world a better place, more equitable through your role at Wellington? Yes. Well, for every initiative we take, uh, we always collaborate. One of the main principles is precisely what can we really share in this practices, what can we really learn? And not only sharing, it's also learning from outside to inside. So in every initiative, we try to establish some collaboration and that's with lots of different state schools. We are uh, coordinated the Baxter Schools Eco Network that is formed by state schools and independent schools where we sit together and we share good practice, but also we share resources. We share the opportunities that we are part of, and students are, again, the voice and the drivers of that. And, uh, and that's a very good experience for them. And are you in some way involving uh, young people from Mexico? Yeah, not yet. 
but we are well in, in a way yes and not directly because we are part of obviously different international efforts and mm. um and what we have been doing and what i've been trying to to do in my other hat as uh, as the person that works in negotiations is precisely how can I interact in between the Mexican government, for example, and Wellington College. And the, for the first time we I, I, I achieved that dream. We did a, um, in, now in COP28, we were accepted a, a proposal and created a, a side event in between a Latin American Observatory on Climate Change. Uh, so it's a regional organization and Wellington College where students were involved on this. So they got to understand how things are working in Mexico and interacted in between the young people that the delegation had. Um, but we are part of different international networks and we are collaborating with different schools. Uh, still, Mexico uh, is not there yet. And probably it's because obviously this, this disparity in between the different schools that are there and the ones that are, for example, in Europe or in this part of the hemisphere. That is so true. I think that's particularly fascinating for me. So one aspect of your present role, I want to step outside of Wellington. I mean, you are someone who has accompanied the Mexican government to COP26, 27, and now also COP28. So you are a really seasoned campaigner on these topics. Um, so talk to me a little bit about how you're using COP as a vehicle for driving your initiatives or ideas forward. And do you believe it's an efficient vehicle? Because there are many detractors or many people who criticize this um, gathering. Yes. Well, I must say that uh, I have been in the different grounds uh, when talking about the negotiations, the actions of the of the Mexican government. Uh, I used to be part of the youth movement. I used to be part of the NGO movement. I used to be part of the local government's movement in precisely looking how to influence the life of the public life of, of Mexico. And more recently, in the five last years, uh, as I have been invited to be part of this senior advisor board for the negotiations. So I have been quite lucky to be able to combine all these different perspectives. And I believe the voice of civil society is still essential for these uh, decision making processes. And luckily, mm -hmm. the government has allowed room for this voice to be heard, for to allow public participation. Uh, and now, for example, our delegation was very balanced. During COP28, we had more than 100 delegates that were part of the process. And a big chunk of that was civil society. Uh, and from that part of the civil society as well, we had young people. And young people from uh, different NGOs as well as negotiators. So I was interacting with them. I was advising them. I was really because the the young persons that we have uh, is called Operation Cop. These uh, four young people were selected, well trained in diplomacy and international negotiations, and they were negotiators ne negotiators themselves. So my interaction with them is precisely that intergenerational equity, bringing it to the table of negotiations. Uh, and I have high hopes 
that when the transition to a new government comes, they will keep those uh, commitments that we have always established internationally. And when we talk about Mexico, we strongly believe that human rights should be clearly in the international agenda. And not only thinking of, of that injustice, but when we think about women's participation, youth participation, people with different disadvantages to be presented there, and indigenous voices. This episode is brought to you by Lumi.network. We're on a mission to help the next generation get ready to take on the world. Our AI augmented platform runs quests that help 10 to 25 year olds shape their future by developing AI, entrepreneurship and design thinking skills to solve the most pressing business and social issues. If you or your organization wants to positively impact the next generation, we'd love to talk to you. To learn more, visit Lumi.network. And what, what, in your opinion, can COP do to involve young people more? Because one of my observations, but albeit a subjective one, is I just don't see enough young voices. It has increased. Um, I thought I saw much more this year in Dubai than I've seen before in Scotland or, you know, Shamal Sheikh, etc. What more can be done or is being done? Absolutely. I think, um, well, I consider extremely relevant this, this, uh, this perception you have. I still believe uh, that days dedicated to young people, children and skills and education should continue. And this is just the first step. I still consider as well the uh, think tanks such as UNESCO and governments should continue their collaboration and advertise strongly that young people and members of the public are diplomats as well. Citizens' diplomacy is something that we need to put in the heart as well of education uh, because the representation of schools is quite minimal in the decision-making process per se. Absolutely. Of course, of course, we have the younger that is, for example, gathering the voice of all the young people as observers of the unrecognized constituency by the UNFCCC, that is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. But how many educators are part of this, being well informed and understanding their play? Or how many students, how much of this international arena comes to the classrooms? for them to have a voice to play there. Not many. Not many and at all. No, no. And I believe that educators and teachers, we need to know that we are diplomats of that process because we open the grounds precisely to empower our young people in schools and in the classrooms. And for them to see that they have voice and that they have the opportunity to be there present. That's true. I mean, one of the most prominent um, leaders, education leaders in this region, in, uh, I'm, I'm talking Dubai, he said to me, he said, you know what, I have no idea how to get my school to participate in COP28. We got a message, but we don't know. Is there a bias, do you think, that what can an under 18 or under 25 really do? Yes. Um my intake from, for example, from this experience is that um, we have to really share the good practice in between different schools. Uh, 
But we mm-hmm. really have to establish this networking uh, as part of our goodwill of, of really changing the perspective of how we see our schools. I'm very thankful to Wellington College UK and to Wellington College International for believing in me and giving me the support and parents as well to trust me with the experience of their children in education because it's a massive responsibility. So, for example, I believe that there is examples that I have learned from civil society, such as mock cop experience. And when my students said, I want to apply something like this because I want to learn about the international processes, uh, because in the future I want to go to university and study international politics and environment. So then we motivate students to really put the ground with these experiences that go beyond their school that is, it can be probably secondary school or, or high school for them to have an impact then in university. But we opened this to our Berkshire School Seco Network. They drafted the declaration and then they say, Miss, we don't want this just to stay here. How can we involve other schools that are part of this process, other students? So then I say, okay, let's use our, our process of collaboration with others. And then we reach 6,000 students globally that endorsed this uh, through their schools. So it was a, a, a small step. And then this student said, my parents are really supportive. I want to go to COP28. Then luckily we got to have the grounds and the support from Wellington College, Wellington College International, and the Mexican government that supported us to collaborate. And this declaration was delivered to the Minister of Education of Emirates, to the Ministry of Education of the UK, to the to UNESCO. So is when they get to see that schools are active and that they are part of this. And it shouldn't be limited to only one school in this oh, Absolutely should not be. I think so. I think this should be serving as a template. Uh, is this declaration public? Yes, yes, it's, it's public. It's in our website. And I'm more than happy to share with you. Yeah, please do. I think, uh, and... Uh, can you give me one or two examples of what this declaration contains? Yes, our declaration uh, was precisely promoting uh, a good example, how inviting decision makers to say, okay, give me a good example of how you react or act towards these, these uh, international agreements. Uh, and also it was calling uh, our our negotiations to be part of something that is more fair, that's something that includes the voice of young people, precisely. So um, it's not only the voice of 60 students, it's not only the voice of 6,000 students globally, it's all already inviting others to be part of this process, but from the perspective of, of policy making. So we strongly believe that uh, young people should be part of, of these decision-making processes, for example, and that government should take this emphasis in young voices at not only COPs, at not only big events, or not only ticking the box, but it should be part of the established process, for example, that countries should adopt. So let me challenge you there a little bit. Um, do you think that a ver- you know, majority of parents um, really want their kids involved in tackling sustainability. Some anecdotal evidence and also some data seems to suggest otherwise. You know, parents are parents care about 
their students performing well, their children performing well. They care about which university they will go to or whether they'll go to university, about getting good jobs. Sustainability seems to be an afterthought. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I will answer to that in respect of sustainability is everywhere. When parents think of, of the futures of their children uh, and how good they may do in, in that future, we cannot avoid to think that whatever is happening will have an impact in those, in those jobs in that future. Uh, it can be for very good or it can be, I don't call it bad because I don't like to give that pessimistic perspective. I think every area is an opportunity of learning and an opportunity to advance. And I love to the perspective, for example, that Factfulness, the book of Rosling, give us for that future where every bit that we go through, even in our academics, if I am a student that is focusing in obtaining the best gradings to go to the best university, yes, maybe I'm not aware that what I'm doing is part of that system that can be labeled as sustainability. But then during my journey, I may realize that these different bits are forming part of that system. Understood. Great. So uh, let's move into the future. So talk to me about, you know, 10, maybe even 20 years from now. How do you see the world uh, from the lens of a young person? Well, from the lens of a young person, I, I want to see this process uh, as something that is not only my responsibility, that I don't feel that it's only in my shoulders, that it relies that this world will not really reach above the 1.5. I want to see that there is a true interaction in between generations for us to work together to tackle the challenges and the opportunities that this new phase presents to us in these global issues uh, that can be labeled as sustainability, that can be labeled as climate education in the future, climate justice or social justice, human rights, uh, finance, that can be around all these topics. As a young person, I want to feel empowered. I want to feel listened. I want to see uh, how action starts in schools, but needs to go beyond the classroom. Uh, How do we encourage myself and others to be active citizens in our local communities and in our governments when possible? And how the legacy of what we do now as young generation can raise their the ambitions of other generations for quality education and how we can see governments transforming the curriculum, the skills, the careers and the states we are part of, uh, be, being part of and how uh, world leaders uh, see climate education as something that we depend on nowadays to really succeed in the future. That is a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot, yes. But I think if we give the right message, then hope it will be out there. And that's what we need, hope to continue. Absolutely. Well, 
you and i both believe in the power of young people and actually also um uh you know you are not only promoting that intergenerational dialogue you are involving parents you are involving the government uh, through your work uh you're working with young people directly there's quite a lot anna and i you know the, the thing i feel is that we need probably a million annas you know uh to kind of overcome the challenge that we are presented with right now as society globally but thank you so much for for giving me the time and for telling us about your journey and about your work and about your aspirations um i wish you the very best and uh, look forward to a continued dialogue and engagement with you thank you so much in the opposite thank you for the invitation and for letting me share my experience thanks for listening if you found this conversation valuable please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts if you have a story or someone you know does please recommend them to us by email at hello@lumi.network at we'll see you next time on in youth we trust